Good to be with you in the middle of this very meaningful season. I really cannot tell if it's kind or cruel, relevant or ridiculous to talk about freedom from busyness a week and a half before Christmas. Now, no doubt there are some of you here today who have all of your Christmas presents bought and wrapped and placed under your beautifully decorated tree. Um, You have a perfectly paced schedule of events and holiday gatherings with a perfect outfit to go with each one. And maybe you're sitting here today full of peace and joy and wondering why we need to do a message on busyness. Well, I assure you that I am not that person. And if you are, you may feel free to leave now, and the rest of us will stay here and just grapple with this issue. I won't be offended at all. Because here we are in the middle of the busiest season of the year, and from what I understand, it's also the busiest season of your life as a church, or the busiest weekend of the whole season for your life as a church, and we're talking about freedom from busyness. So clearly, there is no time like the present to dig into this topic. You know, these days, the subject of busyness is something of a mixed bag. On the one hand, saying that we're busy can carry with it a certain kind of self-importance, right? When someone asks, how are you? And we are able to say, well, I'm busy. That lets the other person know that we are important, that we're in demand, that we're juggling a lot, that we're earning our right to breathe on the planet today. On the other hand, being busy or being too busy for too long can literally fill us with a sense of despair inside. While we might have a little bit of self-importance going on, we also have despair. Why is that? Why can busyness be one of those things that fills us with despair? Well, I think one reason is that we know when we are too busy that we're not living the way we want to live. We're not living in ways that are consistent with the deep longings and desires of our hearts. Because the truth is, underneath the surface busyness of our lives, we do long for lives of meaning and purpose. We long for love. In other words, we long to live the kind of life that makes it possible for us to give and receive love with those that we care about, and oftentimes our busyness robs us of that. We long for change and transformation, and of course, that kind of work takes time as well, right? It takes attention, it takes perhaps reading, it takes processing, it takes help maybe. And we are aware of the broken and stuck places of our lives or the ways in which it's just not working, that the way that we're doing life just isn't working, but we don't have the time or the attention to give to it. We long for God. We long to know God and to experience his presence in our lives. And yet a real relationship takes time and attention as well. And often our busyness robs us of the ability to give real good attention to our relationship with God. So we know that our busyness detracts from all of that. And on some level, we know that it's a kind of bondage because we're not free. We're not free to order our lives around what matters the most at Christmas or at any other time of the year. In fact, we might even feel besieged by busyness. We might feel like we've been backed into a corner and that we're unable to move about freely because we're so busy defending against the onslaught of the next commitment or the next request or the next thing that might require something of us. There was a survey done recently of 20,000 Christians around the world, and it revealed that many Christians identified busyness and constant overload as a major distraction from their relationship with God. So this is not just about our culture here in America, 20,000 Christians around the world. And so from his post as professor of management at Charlestown University of Business, 
Michael Zigarelli described a vigorous, uh, excuse me, a vicious cycle prompted by cultural conformity. And that's interesting, isn't it? Because sometimes we think about cultural conformity as being about moral issues or issues having to do with sexuality or things like that. Rarely do we think about being given over to busyness and hurry as being an area of cultural conformity. In other words, a place where we as Christians are more like the culture and allowing culture to influence us. I think that's a very interesting idea. So he describes this vicious cycle. He says, number one, Christians are assimilating a culture of busyness, hurry, and overload. Which leads to number two, God becoming marginalized in Christians' lives. In other words, rather than God being in the center, he's on the margins of our lives due to busyness. Which leads to three, a deteriorating relationship with God, which leads to four, Christians becoming even more vulnerable to adopting secular assumptions about how to live, which leads to five, more conformity to a culture of busyness, hurry, and overload. So you see the vicious cycle going on there. I want to go over that one more time because I want you to listen now to recognize whether or not you find yourself in this vicious cycle anywhere. Can I go over it one more time? Because I went over that kind of fast. But number one, Christians are assimilating a culture of busyness, hurry, and overload. In other words, we are capitulating to culture um, in this area of busyness. This leads to, number two, God becoming marginalized in our lives, which leads to, number three, a deteriorating relationship with God, which leads to, number four, Christians becoming even more vulnerable to adopting secular assumptions about how to live, which leads to number five, more conformity to a culture of busyness, hurry, and overload. So I wonder if you find yourself in any part of that vicious cycle today, and if you're brave enough to even say that to yourself today. Yeah, I, I resemble that. I find myself in that vicious cycle. I am in that vicious cycle, where I am more given over to what the culture has to say about how to live life than I am getting my cues from God about how to live my life. So you can see that this is a kind of bondage, can't you? And in fact, we are caught in a cycle that is unconscious for the most part, which means that we can't ever really confront it because we're not even aware of how caught we are. Now, all you may be aware of, though, is a vague sense that something is not quite right. You know, just a nagging, niggling feeling that something is not quite right. And maybe in your quieter moments, there's a kind of longing that breaks through into consciousness and your heart cries out for a way of life that works. But the problem is that often in that very moment when we are aware of the fact that we are longing for a way of life that works, at that very moment, another distraction comes and we forget it for a while again. Or, to make things even more complicated, we distract ourselves from falling back, um, by falling back into busyness so that we don't have to fully face into the discomfort of longing for something that we do not have and do not know how to get. And so we actually use our busyness to anesthetize ourselves against the pain and emptiness that busyness creates. Do you see why it's so vicious and subtle? That sometimes even without knowing it, we fall back into distraction as a way of being numb to the discomfort that we feel about the fact that we're not living the kind of life that we want to be living. Talk about a vicious cycle. Lord, have mercy on our souls, right, in the midst of this reality. And 
So I want us to pray right now. I want us to cry out to God for mercy as we um, enter into this topic because we do need God's mercy. We are stuck. We are caught. And we don't even know it. And um, we don't want to be giving ourselves over to guilt or to shame about our schedules. We don't want to give easy fix solutions either. We really do need God's mercy to visit us in this area of our lives called busyness. So let's pray together for a moment and use uh, this moment to open ourselves to God's solutions. Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on us today. We are busy. We confess that we are busy. We confess that oftentimes we're not living the lives that we most deeply want. We confess that sometimes you do become marginalized rather than being central in our lives, and that grieves us deeply. We recognize that we're longing for more in our lives, a more that would come beyond being so subject to this vicious cycle that we've described here today. And so, Lord, we cry out to you for mercy, and we ask you to protect us from guilt and shame. We ask you to protect us from making excuses and rationalizing our lives as they exist, but that instead we would allow our longings to open us to you today, that we would cry out to you and say, Lord, help us to find a way. Help us um, to be free from a life lived in bondage to busyness. And we ask this for your own name's sake. Amen. So I believe that there is an anecdote to this particular issue of busyness, but it might surprise you what I'm going to say. Oftentimes when we talk about busyness, someone sort of comes in with a bunch of simple solutions, usually time management tool. How many of you have ever been to a time management seminar? Yeah, you've been. How many of you have ever been given a new calendar or a new time management tool and you've thought, okay, this is the answer for my life. If I can just get my appointments entered into this electronic tool or into this calendar, somehow it's going to be the silver bullet that changes my life. Well, I'm going to ask you to go to someplace a little deeper than this today as we look at the antidote to our busyness. I'm going to ask you to be brave enough to get in touch with your longing, not just your superficial wants and desires, but the deepest, truest desires of your soul. You know, when Jesus was on the earth, he routinely drew people into spiritual conversations and deeper into the spiritual life by asking them questions that helped them to get in touch with their desire. So in John 1, when two of John's disciples started to follow Jesus as he walked by, Jesus literally turned around and said to them, what are you seeking? What are you looking for? What do you want? And I suppose I could ask you that today. You know, when you walked into church today, what were you seeking? What do you want? What did you expect to happen when you came here today? Now, I'm sure some of you probably came because it's just the thing you do on Sundays, but I bet some of you came in today with a longing and with a desire. It's a great question. It's a very penetrating question. What do you want? What are you looking for? In Mark 10, James and John barged into Jesus' presence and, and were very presumptuous and said to him, we want you to do whatever it is we ask of you. Well, if it had been me, I would have shut down right there. I would have thought, how rude. What are you, what are you asking? What are you saying? But Jesus was very gracious, and he said, okay, tell me. Tell me, what do you want me to do for you? And of course, in that particular scenario, in that particular situation, Jesus' penetrating question helped the disciples to get in touch with a kind of a murky place within them, a place of selfish ambition, um, where they wanted a place of prominence on Jesus' right and on his left when Jesus' kingdom came. 
But the good news of that is that it gave Jesus a chance to be with them and to push in a little harder and say, I don't even think you know what you're asking. So sometimes God works with us when we're able to be honest about, it, about our desires and helps us to get in touch with something that's truer and deeper than just our superficial wants and desires. Later in that same passage, there's a blind man who has been begging by the side of the road for years. And on this particular day, he has a sense that uh, Jesus might be able to help him. Jesus is going to be coming by, and he thinks, wow, this is my chance. This is my chance to cry out to Jesus, and maybe Jesus can do something for me that no one else can do. And so he cries out from the depth of his desire, and he says, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of David, have mercy on me, a sinner. And, of course, the crowd tries to silence him. And Bartimaeus just goes down deeper within himself, and he says, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of David, have mercy on me, a sinner. He just cries out even louder. And the rawness and the vulnerability and the humanness of that cry was arresting to Jesus. And Jesus stopped right there in the middle of this busy street, and he says, tell that man to come here. And Bartimaeus is ready, and he leaps up, and he comes to Jesus, and Jesus asks that all-important question, what do you want me to do for you? Now, I wonder if you were sitting with Jesus today, and Jesus asked you that question, if you'd even know what to say. Because the truth is that this question of desire is one that many of us are quite out of touch with. We don't really have a good answer. We're not in touch. We're so distracted by our busyness that we don't know what it is we really want, and so no wonder we can't live our lives in ways that are consistent with our deepest desires. One more story about this particular um, aspect of Jesus' conversations with people is John 5, where there's this invalid who's been laying by the pool of Bethsaida for a long time, believing that there was an angel that would come and would stir up the waters, and if he could be the first one in, that he might be healed. He's been laying there for years waiting for this moment. And Jesus walks up to him and gets very direct with him and says, do you want to be made well? In other words, how bad do you want it? You've got to really want it. In order for something to change in your life, you have to let yourself really want it. And so that's my question for you this morning. How bad do you want it? How bad do you want freedom from the busyness of your life? And are you willing to get up and do something about it? Are you willing to rearrange your life for what it is that you say you really want? So I believe that there is no way to deal with the issue of busyness without getting in touch with our truest, deepest desires. Nothing I'm going to say next is going to help you if you don't know the answer to that question. Without being in touch with your desire, you will not be able to, um, re to resist your own inner compulsions, your own inner drives to keep you all riled up. Uh, the drives to do more and achieve more and buy more and have more. Those are inner compulsions that come from inside us. But without the answer to your heart's deepest desire, you also will not know how to resist the culture whose very existence depends upon your willingness to stay on that relentless treadmill of insatiable need for achievement and acquisition. The whole culture is predicated upon keeping you um, on the treadmill of insatiable need for achievement and acquisition. So without being in touch with desire, you won't be able to deal with your own inner compulsions that keep you so driven and busy, and you won't be able to resist the culture that attempts to keep you busy and driven as well. So this is the brave question. This is where we start. We start with asking the question, do you really want to be free? 
from your bondage to busyness. How bad do you want it? Do you want it enough to be willing to change your life? It's not going to be about a new time management tool, I can assure you. It's going to be about your willingness to be brave about this question. Now, I have been with people soul to soul, and I've been with myself enough to know that many of you right now don't have a good answer to that question. And in fact, if you and I were sitting down having an intimate conversation, and I were to ask you that question directly, what do you want in life? How bad do you want freedom from your busyness and from your drivenness? You might stumble around a little bit, and you might, you know, throw out a few answers, but all the while you know, that's not really it. I'm talking, I'm yapping, I'm saying things, but that's not really what my deepest desire is. And it's sort of a panicky feeling to realize, I don't even know the answer to that question. If this question is so important, I don't even know the answer to it. But I want to tell you today that that is okay. That the journey of removing the layers and peeling back the layers of our desires, starting with superficial wants and desires, we all have those, but peeling them back and seeing what's underneath and what's underneath, that's a journey, it's a process, and it will take you time. And so if you realize today that you don't know the answer to that question, and that if it was me or Jesus himself asking you the question, that you wouldn't know the answer, that's all right. Just determine that you're going to sit with God with that a bit that in your own quiet, you're going to sit with that question um, and you're going to stay with it long enough um, so that you can actually rearrange your life for what it is that you say you really want. But once we begin to work with this question, there are some practices that are contained within our own Christian tradition that can help us to peel back the layers and to move through the layers, to get in touch with what we really want, and then to begin to order our lives for what we say we really want. So I'm going to mention three to you today. Uh, solitude and silence. Well, that's two, but I'm going to count it as one if that's okay with you. Solitude and silence, simplicity, and Sabbath keeping. All S's so that you can remember them. But I don't want you to feel like you have to do everything that I say today. What I want to do is make some suggestions about some of the Christian practices that help us to deal with busyness, but I want to leave you completely free to choose the one that resonates with you, to choose just something that you say, oh, I feel drawn to that. Oh, I, I sense God's invitation to me within that practice, or wow, if I did that, that would really make a difference. So just start wherever you can. Choose one little thing and say, I'm going to do something before I do everything. I don't want you to walk out of here feeling guilty or burdened down with the things that I'm discussing, but what I would like you to do is to be able to identify one thing that you think might make a difference in your life and to determine in God's presence that you're going to engage in that particular practice. So practicing our freedom, there's a little bit of a double meaning to that phrase, practicing freedom, because on the one hand, we do need to practice. When we practice something over and over again, it can become a habit which literally can change the shape of our lives. So that's what we mean when we talk about practicing, because we need practice. And then we're also talking about these Christian practices that help us um, move through the busyness of our lives. So when I was first invited into the practices of solitude and silence, and I will define them in a moment, I was in my early 30s, and it was in the context of a life that was out of control in all the ways that we've just discussed. I was a young minister whose career trajectory was up and to the right. I was a young parent at the time with three little children. I was just beginning uh, to discover writing and speaking as a calling in my life. 
I was driven to acquire things, as young families often are. I was driven to acquire things that young families want. Uh, a bigger house, more vehicles, nicer clothes, uh, good schools for the kids, all that sort of thing. I was driven to achieve something in my life as well. I've always been a sort of type A personality, and I had big dreams uh, for myself and for my life. So I was busy with important things, but I was not well. I was not caring for my body. I was tired. I was lethargic. I was relying on caffeine for energy. I was not giving my best to my family. I, I had lost the intimacy and connection with God that I had experienced very early in my conversion experience. And I was driven by ego rather than responding to the call of God in my life. I was in bondage to a way of life that didn't work. And it was unsustainable. And I knew it. I began to know it deeply, that the way I was living my life could not be sustained, that I wouldn't make it if I kept living the way I was living. And so at that point, I sought out a, a wise spiritual guide, a spiritual director, if you will. And I thought that we would sit around and talk about this stuff and that I would describe all the impossibilities of my life, my schedule, my responsibilities, the questions I had, and that we would talk and that she would fix me up and I would get right back out there and get right back to life and just do it a little bit more efficiently, you know? And that she would give me some good advice along those lines. Well, she was wise enough to let me talk just long enough for my words to run out. And that's a really good thing, you know, because I'm a word person, I'm a writer, I'm a speaker. I love to throw words at things, you know, and I think I'm making progress if I can just throw a bunch of words at something. But she waited. She waited patiently. The words ran out. I realized that the answers were not going to come through the words, and that was kind of sobering. And then at one point she said to me, Ruth, you are like a jar of river water all shaken up. And what you need is to sit still long enough so that the sediment can settle and the water can become clear. And friends, I was riveted by her statement for two reasons. One, I was riveted because she had named me. She had just nailed it. She was right. I was a jar of river water all shaken up and the sediment that swirled in my soul was the sediment of um, busyness, questions for which I had no answers, responsibilities that sometimes seemed to be beyond me, the drivenness that I could not seem um, to, to harness and to discipline in my life. And even though I would have liked to have said to her at that point, you know what, I'm, I am so much more than that. I am so much more than a jar of river water all shaken up. I realized that I had let her see me and that she was right. She had named me and she had nailed the reality of my life. The other reason that I was riveted in that moment, though, was because of the vision. Uh, the vision that came through the image of a jar of river water that had been sitting still long enough for the sediment to settle and the water to become clear. Because the truth is, I'd been a Christian for a long time, and I had already heard all the biblical words and metaphors that described what a Christian life could be. And they are good words. They're deep words. They're rich in meaning, but they had lost their meaning for me because I'd, I had heard them way too many times. But... This image of a jar of river water that had been sitting still long enough for the sediment to settle and the water to become clear, now that called to me with a fresh vision about what I might want for my own life. 
And it resonated with me so deeply, and I thought, yeah, that's what I want. I do want to be like that jar of river water. I would like it to be like that inside my soul where it is calm, where it is clear, where I can hear the voice of God, where I can experience the presence of God, where I can know God beyond the words. That's what I want for my life. And I got in touch with a longing that was so deep that I was willing to change my life. I was willing to get off the treadmill uh, for a little while to discover what might be there beyond the busyness. And during that time, I discovered that this willingness to be in solitude and silence was a very biblical idea. Psalm 46.10 talks about the willingness to be still and know that I am God, which is a very um, literal metaphor, opening one's hands, letting go of what one typically grasps at in order to receive something from God that's beyond our own agenda. Um, Psalm 61, in silence my soul waits for you and you alone, O God. Uh, from you alone comes my salvation. I had practiced quiet times in the past because I'd been a Christian for a long time, but I realized that they too had become very busy, only just full of Christian busyness. So I had my Bible study plan, you know, read through the Bible in three years or one year if you read five chapters a day, um, and prayer plans that were just absolutely exhausting, and then the Christian books that I was reading and the self-help books and the teaching tape that I, you know, needed to listen to because I wasn't in church last Sunday and the prayers that just exhausted me, and I realized that I had done in my quiet time what I had done in my other life, which is just to fill it up with stuff. Even though it was Christian stuff, it was stuff. But solitude and silence was really different. Solitude is pulling away from our life and the company of others in order to give our full and undivided attention to God. That sounds a lot like a quiet time to me. That's why silence was so important as an additional component, because in silence we pull away from our life and the company of others, yes, but we also pull away from our addiction to noise and to words and to activity, in other words, busyness in order to be fully present to God. And so this was a challenging practice for someone who was as driven as I had been. And for the first year or so, all I did was struggle and feel the chaos of my inner life. But eventually things did start to settle down and so many good things started to happen and still happen because I practice solitude and silence in my own life now routinely um, because I, I wouldn't be able to sustain myself without it. And a couple of things I'll mention here, even though so many good things happen in solitude, the two I'm going to mention here are, number one, we begin to be able to distinguish God's voice from all the other voices that clamor for our attention. The voices of our own inner compulsions, you know, I can now tell the difference between God's voice and the voice of my own inner compulsions. And I can also tell the difference now between the voice of God and the voices of culture, I can tell the difference between God's voice and the voices of everybody else's expectations of me. Those are pretty important distinctions, wouldn't you say? And it is only in solitude and silence that we learn to distinguish God's voice from all the other voices that clamor for our attention. And you can see how that would really help to limit one's busyness because you're no longer reacting and responding to all those other things that are not God. And then secondly... What happens in solitude and silence that is so profound is that we do get in touch with the deepest desires of our hearts. We get in touch with desires that God actually placed within us and that God longs to meet. Psalm 37, 4, trust in the Lord with all your heart and he will give you the desires of your heart. There are desires within your heart today that God himself placed there and that God himself longs to meet. 
if you could just listen long enough, if you could allow the chaos to settle enough so that you could hear the true desires of your heart. What does it sound like when your true desires start talking to you? You might be wondering, what does that sound like? How will I know? Well, I don't know what it's going to sound like exactly for you, but I'll tell you what it sounds like for me. And it usually comes from this gut level place. Oh, God, I just want to be a better person. Have you ever felt yourself say that? After you've yelled at a spouse or been impatient with a child or cursed at another driver or um, been mean to a grocery clerk, you know, you walk out of there saying, oh, God, I just want to be a better person. Transformation. I want to be transformed. I don't want to stay like this. Or, oh, God. I just want a way of life that works. Do you find yourself driving around one place to another doing errands and saying, oh God, I just want a way of life that works. This does not work. Or, oh God, sometimes in the middle of all of this busyness, I feel so lonely, like nobody gets me or values me just for who I am. I just want somebody to understand me. Or God, I'm so tired. I just want to rest. I just want to someday wake up and be rested and do my day in a rested fashion. Or God, I miss you so much. I just want to feel your presence. I just want to hear a word from you. I just want to know you're there. In solitude and silence, all the noise and the chaos settles down so that we can finally hear God and his voice distinct from all the rest and so that we can finally hear our deepest, truest desires. And what happens from there is very, very natural. It leads us into our second practice, and that is the practice of simplicity. It's a Christian practice that is intended to free us from our busyness because once we're in touch with our truest desires, then we can simplify our lives around those truest desires. Simplicity is simply the capacity to order our lives around what we value most. Isn't that lovely? Simplicity is simply the capacity to order our lives around what we value the most. And there are so many places in Scripture that refer to this particular practice. Matthew 6.36, seek ye first the kingdom of God. In other words, know what's most important to you, and then all these other things will be added unto you. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, I am afraid lest your minds be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. And then, of course, there's the story of Mary and Martha in Luke 10 when Martha is worried and distracted by so many things and Jesus affirms Mary's choice to sit at his feet. Now, that story often gets interpreted in a very superficial way and Mary and Martha get pitted against one another and I never appreciate that. I think there are much deeper insights in that story which are beyond what we can do today. But I do want to mention one thing and observe one thing about the Mary-Martha story where Jesus affirms Mary for choosing the one true thing um, which can never be taken from her. I wonder if what's going on there is that Martha was jealous that Mary knew what she wanted and chose it. Do you think, do you, do you think that that might be possible? Mary knew that she wouldn't have Jesus forever. Mary knew that she wanted to be with Jesus and because she knew what she wanted, she chose it on that day. And I wonder if Martha wished she had been brave enough to choose to be with Jesus in that way. Now, sometimes somebody has to cook dinner, right? You know, there are times when we're called to be at Jesus' feet. Other times we're called to fix dinner. But I think we can also be in touch with truest desire so that if we're fixing dinner, we're doing it because it's our deepest desire, you know, to do this for Jesus. Or we can be like Mary and choose to sit with him 
out of our deepest desire. But either way, we're in touch with what we really want, and so we're able to do it with all our heart. And I think that's the point of that particular story. Jesus is saying, know what you want and choose it. Choose it in any given moment, but know what it is. So um, I think much of our busyness is actually a result of being led away from simplicity, the simplicity of our devotion to Christ and the few things that he has called us to be and to be about. As Dallas Willard once said, God never gives anyone too much to do. We do that to ourselves or we allow others to do it to us. Now, at this point, you might be groaning inwardly and saying, man, she is just so out of touch with real life. I don't know what she thinks she's talking about. You might be afraid that I'm going to impose some sort of foreign lifestyle on you, something like a Mennonite or a Quaker lifestyle, and that's sort of going around in your head, and you're like, I hope she doesn't take us there. Well, no, that's not what I'm talking about. Simplicity is not about guilt. It's not about conformity to someone else's lifestyle. It's an invitation to radical freedom in which we arrange our lives around a few consistent purposes and intentionally say no to those commitments that fall outside of those areas of purpose. The purpose of simplicity is to actually liberate us, to liberate us from the demands of conflicting purposes so that we can live consistently with our heart's deepest desires, so that we can seek first the kingdom of God as the kingdom of God is to be expressed uniquely in and through our lives. So if we don't know what our deepest desire is, we will never be able to simplify. And simplification will always feel like an imposition of somebody else's choices, somebody else's lifestyle, because we're not in touch with what God is asking of us. So simplicity also requires an ability to say no that sometimes we will have to say no to those things that don't contribute to the aspects of life that we are committing ourselves to. We say no so that we can say the biggest kind of yes to what is true in our lives and to what God is calling forth in our lives. So here's one little suggestion that I have for you. How about in addition to making your to-do list, you also make a not-to-do list? What do you think of that? Even now, even as you finish out the Christmas season, what about if you did your to-do list, but those were things that were really important to you, and then you also had a not-to-do list because you recognized that those expectations were coming from somewhere else and you want to just let it go? How about that? A wonderful little practical idea for how um, you might really get specific about these things. Now, you'll also have to be willing to disappoint people. And that's painful. It's a painful reality, and you will have to grapple with that. I disappoint people all the time. I say way more no's than yeses in my life right now. And it means I have to be big enough on the inside to live with other people's disappointments, especially when they have a set of expectations that aren't consistent with what I believe God is calling forth in my life. And so I hope that you'll be able to hold um, other people's disappointment. And maybe in your ability to simplify your life, you will actually inspire other people to say no as well. You'll actually give them the freedom to say no when they need to. So then there's one final practice Solitude and silence, simplicity, which carries with it the need to say no. And then finally, there is the practice of Sabbath keeping. And I could speak for a week on Sabbath keeping. It's become such an important practice for me. It's become sort of the kingpin of my own life, lived well in God. But I'm going to limit myself to talking about Sabbath as it relates to busyness. I believe that Sabbath keeping is the practice that helps us to practice 
being the free people that we are. That Sabbath keeping helps us to practice being the free people that we are. Now, as you may know, Sabbath keeping refers to a specific practice of working six days and resting on the seventh. Sabbath keeping, just to be clear, originates with God. Sabbath keeping is not first and foremost a Jewish practice. It originates with God at creation. And then when God um, brought forth a people for himself, he taught them about Sabbath, but he himself lived it. So he created on six, uh, for six days, and then on the seventh day, he called it enough, he called it good, and then he rested. Only secondarily was Sabbath keeping a Jewish practice. It is a practice that we see embodied, first of all, in God, and then he passes it on to those of us that he cares for and loves. He knows we need it. He created us. He knows that we were not created to be busy all the time. He knows that human beings cannot survive if we work 24-7 all the time. And as far as I can see, there is nothing in Scripture to indicate that God ever retracted God's belief in the goodness and necessity of Sabbath-keeping. We decide that. We are the ones who have decided that. I am the one that decided in my own life early on, in my own great wisdom, that I did not need a Sabbath and that Sabbath no longer applies to contemporary culture. I decided that I was exempt from Sabbath-keeping, that I was too busy, that the stuff I was involved in was too important. I was young. I was strong. I was driven. I didn't need a Sabbath. But then I got run over by a car, literally. A number of years ago, while I was riding my bike, I was um, on a sidewalk passing in front of a parking lot that was empty except for one minivan that was being driven by an elderly gentleman. Um, he was waiting to, you know, pull out into the street, and because we met eyes, I assumed he was going to give me the right-of-way because I was the pedestrian, I was on the sidewalk. But instead, he accelerated and pulled in, you know, pulled into the street. So I saw what was happening, but not soon enough to be able to prevent it. I did slow down, but we collided. I went down, my bike and my legs were still intertwined with each other, and he uh, ran up onto my legs. And it was a moment of utter clarity. You ever had one of those? I did not pass out or anything like that. I was just utterly clear. And the thought that went through my mind was, I hope he gets this thing off me pretty soon because this really hurts. I literally thought that in my mind, utter clarity. Well, by God's grace, he was able to throw the car into reverse and pull off my legs. There was some off-duty paramedics who were driving by in their truck. Isn't that something? So they were able to scoop me up off the sidewalk and get me to the hospital and um, I made it through that experience with just a fractured ankle. That night at home, I experienced euphoria. My whole family, were, we were sitting around just so grateful because we knew it could have gone another direction. But the very next day, I was back at work. Even though I was bruised from the waist down and limping around, I was back at work. And one of my friends said to me, you know what, Ruth, you could take a day off. You did just get run over by a car. <laughs> Another one of my friends said, Ruth, when are you going to learn that when you are on a bike, you cannot take on a minivan? And I realized that that was a metaphor for my whole life. But eventually that relief gave way to other levels of awareness as well. And um, there was this sentence from Wayne Mueller's book, Sabbath, that kept buzzing around in my head, you know, like a fly buzzes on a window pane. And it was this. He said, if we do not allow for a rhythm of rest in our overly busy lives, illness becomes our Sabbath, our pneumonias, our cancers, our heart attacks, our accidents create Sabbath for us. 
I did not want to hear this. I did not want to consider the fact that perhaps this accident, while it was not God's fault, was a way in which God was trying to get my attention and tell me something. I did not want to acknowledge that it was that hard for God to get my attention. I didn't want to face the fact that for years I'd been thumbing my nose at human limitations, believing that I was better than God, who needed to rest on the seventh day. Truth is, I had succumbed completely to a culture of busyness, even though I was a Christian. Complete cultural conformity in this area. And it was a culture of Christian busyness, where I had spiritual reason, reasons for doing everything I was doing. The other part of the truth is that I did not want to open myself up to the can of worms that this would open for me. The impossibility of it all in this current culture, I could not figure it out. My husband's work happened on Sundays. Our children all played sports, and they were all in sports on Sundays. My own work by this time was so big it couldn't be contained in six days a week. It needed seven. And so I didn't know what to do with myself, but I realized that God was trying to get my attention, and I became in touch with my longing for a way of life that worked better than what I was currently living. I remember uh, reading uh, Wayne Mueller's book um, and weeping over some of his instructions. He said things like, light a candle alone or with friends. Let each of you speak about those things that are left to do. And as the candle burns, allow the cares to melt away. Do not be anxious about tomorrow, said Jesus. The worries of today are sufficient for today. Whatever remains to be done for now, let it be. It will not get done tonight. In Sabbath time, we take our hand off the plow and allow God and the earth to care for what is needed. Let it be. Those words were almost more than I could bear because I wanted it so badly I could feel it. There was nothing in my life that felt that gentle, nothing in my life that felt that kind, nothing in my life that felt that human. And there was something about the beauty and the kindness and the concreteness of it all that pierced my self-sufficiency and the hardness of my activism and began to draw me into this practice of Sabbath keeping. And I don't have time today to tell you all the ways in which I personally and our family worked to, to claim Sabbath for ourselves. That would be a whole other teaching. What I want for you this morning is that maybe you would start to feel your longing for a practice like that. Because the truth is that Sabbath keeping is a practice that will mess with you. Because once you start to move beyond busyness and to experience this kind of trust and this kind of rest in God, you will long for it. It will capture you. And whenever you lose even a moment of your Sabbath time, you will grieve because that quality of time has become so important to you. Sabbath is definitely about um, the day of rest, but it's so much more than that. It's about ordering our whole lives around a pattern of working six days, resting on the seventh. But it's really about honoring the whole rhythm of things, work and rest Fruitfulness and dormancy, giving and receiving, being and doing, activism and surrender. Rhythm is such a beautiful thing. It's about honoring God with the time of our lives so that one day a week we practice not being busy even when we're busy. It's a quality of time as well. It's about trusting that in God enough is enough. Enough work, enough stuff, enough bought, enough sold, enough done, and that it's good. And that God can take whatever we have done and make it enough. 
just like the five loaves and two fishes. He can make more out of it than we ever could if we will trust him with the work of our lives and let him continue on while we rest in him. God made us. He knows we cannot be busy all the time and still be well. He gave us a way to practice not being busy. And what I have discovered in my own life is that when I have this rhythm in place, if Sabbath is coming, I can handle anything. I can handle six days of busyness if I know that Sabbath is coming on the seventh day. And no matter how busy I am in the week following, I can face it because I'm coming into it having been rested and replenished on that Sabbath day. And friends, there are promises for those of us who keep the Sabbath. Isaiah 58 says, If you refrain from trampling the Sabbath from pursuing your own interests on my holy day. If you call the Sabbath a delight and the holy day of the Lord honorable, if you honor it, not going your own ways or serving your own interests or pursuing your own affairs, then you shall take delight in the Lord and I will make you rise upon the heights. Sabbath keeping is a practice that will cause you to fall in love with God all over again. So as we end our time together today, I was thinking that maybe we could use a Sabbath moment. What do you think? Maybe you can't figure out how to get a Sabbath day in the next couple of weeks, but maybe we could have a Sabbath moment, a moment when we trust God with our lives, where we call what we've done already enough, and where we rest ourselves in Him beyond the busyness of our lives. So if you will pray with me, I want to close with a prayer called, There is Something I Wanted to Tell You. And in the middle of the prayer, I'm going to just be quiet. And I'm going to let you say what you need to say to God in these quiet moments. Maybe you'll say something to God about your own longing as it's been stirred today. Maybe everything in you rises up and says, it sounds so good, but I don't know how. Um, maybe there's something that you need to say to God. And maybe you could just say it. Even if you can't fix everything today, maybe you could at least start moving beyond busyness by saying the truest thing you know how to say to God. And if it helps you to open your hands as a way of letting God that, know that you are willing to let go and receive from him, your body can help you as you pray. Holy One, there is something I wanted to tell you, but there have been errands to run, bills to pay, arrangements to make, meetings to attend, friends to entertain, gifts to buy, cleaning to do. And I forget what it is I wanted to say to you, and mostly I forget what I'm about or why. Oh God, don't forget me, please, for the sake of Jesus Christ. Eternal one, there is something I wanted to tell you, but my mind races with worrying and watching, with weighing and planning, with rutted slights and pothole grievances, with leaky dreams and leaky plumbing and leaky relationships I keep trying to plug up, and my attention is preoccupied with loneliness, with doubt, and with things I covet. And I forget what it is I wanted to say to you and how to say it honestly or how to do much of anything. Oh God, don't forget me, please, 
for the sake of Jesus Christ. Almighty One, there is something I wanted to say to you, but I stumble along the edge of a nameless rage, haunted by a, ho a hundred floating fears. I forget what the real question is that I wanted to ask, and I forget to listen anyway, because you seem unreal and far away, and I forget what it is I have forgotten. Oh God, don't forget me, please, for the sake of Jesus Christ. Holy One, there is something I wanted to tell you. Oh, Father in heaven, perhaps you've already heard what I wanted to tell you. What I wanted to ask is, forgive me, heal me, increase my courage, please. Renew in me a little of love and faith and a sense of confidence and a vision of what it might mean to live as though you were real and I mattered and everyone was sister and brother. What I wanted to ask in my blundering way is, don't give up on me. Don't become too sad about me. But laugh with me and try again with me. And I will with you too. Amen. <laughs>